Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Would you like to contribute to the conversation? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition conversation was in. Jay Talking with Bradley Jay. I listen to morning with the sun up. I'm busy. WBZ News Radio 1030. I tune my radio to AM 1030. The radio's all yours now. I talk to a man whose name is Bradley J. Improve my mind in a wonderful way. I just called in to see what condition conversation was in. Yeah, yeah. Love that Kenny Rogers track there. It's WBZ, you're Jay talking. We're live in 9 to 5. Good to be with you. A couple great nights. Hope to have another one tonight. We're going to start off very well. I know that. Rick Byer is with us, producer of The Ghost Army, New York Times bestselling author. And he's won awards for documentaries. And uh, big time history guy. Thanks for being with us. Oh, I'm happy to be here. We're talking about Ghost Army tonight. What was the Ghost Army? The Ghost Army uh, is a nickname for a unit in World War II, officially called the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops, a really boring name for a really fascinating group of guys, and they were a deception unit. And so they used um, inflatable tanks and sound effects and illusion to fool the Germans on the battlefields of Europe. Now, where were they used in, uh, for example, Operation Elephant and Breast, et cetera? Where? Well, so they, they came into action. A lot of people know about the D-Day deception, but these guys came into action starting about a week after D-Day and were in 21 different deceptions, starting Operation Elephant right there in Normandy, not too far from Omaha Beach, uh, going down to being in the Brest and the Brittany Peninsula, then uh, racing across France to help Patton along the Moselle River and the border with, uh, with uh, Germany, uh, and eventually uh, a number of deceptions uh, uh, during and after the Battle of the Bulge, and then eventually their last deception was to fool the Germans about where the Ninth Army would be crossing the Rhine River in March 1945. So they were kind of like a traveling roadshow. They moved around a lot. Were there there are different groups of them, right? There wasn't just one one unit that went from place to place, or did they break them up into various units? Well, no. So there was one unit, uh, eleven hundred guys. Okay. They sometimes only used part of the unit, but basically that unit did twenty-one different deceptions, and they had so inside that unit, they had different units for handling say, the visual deception, the sound deception with sound effects, the radio deception, the, uh, all the different stuff. But they worked together in each of these deceptions. Did they draw from, do they draw especially talented people in the areas of theater and sound, or did they just teach regular guys all, what to do? 
A little bit of both. Uh, they definitely, in the visual deception area, they had a, a unit that had a lot of artists in it. Uh, and uh, so uh, they were initially recruited to work on camouflage, but now they're going to work on deception, which is kind of the flip side of camouflage, right? Instead of trying to hide something, we're trying to get the enemy to see something that isn't really there. Uh, and so those guys, uh, some, some of them were very skilled artists, uh, who went on to a lot of fame later on, including uh, uh, Bill Blast, the fashion designer, Ellsworth Kelly, the painter and sculptor. And then in the technical areas, in the sonic deception, they, they, they basically didn't bring in too many technical people, but they brought in a lot of very bright people, people who tested really super high uh, on intelligence tests. And then in the radio deception unit, they had a lot of people with a technical background, communications background, uh, in that, so kind of, in, and then there were regular guys in there, draftees, you know, policemen, uh, uh, students, bartenders. So it's kind of a, a, a great mix of people doing this. Now, before we continue about the unit itself, you are currently trying to have them awarded the Medal of Honor, correct? Well, it's actually the Congressional Gold Medal. Okay, Congressional we're to, Gold Medal. Uh, get I'm awarded sorry. for that. Okay. No, it's a slightly different, easy mistake to make, and it requires basically an act of Congress, and we are uh, trying to do that right now. Yes. What are the What do you have to accomplish to get an, a congressional gold medal? <laughs> you mean what do you have to do to get the congressman to 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 do it? Or no. What do you have to, do you have to, to sort of achieve? What do you have to achieve to at least be in the in the running for it? I, I, there isn't a a. a, a solid standard for it there it is uh, originally it's a medal that goes back a long time i think george washington got the first one uh but uh it has been awarded to original uh, to to individuals and to groups of people uh the monuments men uh, got a congressional gold medal the doolittle raiders uh, got one uh the uh i think the the Borkineers, the puerto rican unit uh, got one the Wasps got one. So, I mean, I think you have to to show uh, sort of something that really rises above the ordinary and also, I think, show uh, some reason that people should pay attention to it 75 years later. You know, the, the OSS is a great example. The OSS was recently awarded a Congressional Gold Medal, and it was because they were secret at the time, just like the Ghost Army was secret at the time, and their contribution really couldn't be recognized um, there in 1944, 1945, because they were trying to keep it top secret. And that's one reason why we think it's appropriate to recognize it today. So let's ask the other version of the same question. What does it take to, <laughs> to get it awarded to them for, by the powers that be? Yeah, I don't know yet <laughs> because we haven't had it happen yet. But I can tell you that it, it's a lot of effort. This legislation is very different from normal legislation in Congress, which is hard enough to pass. Uh, gold medal legislation requires two-thirds of the House and two-thirds of the Senate to co-sponsor the legislation before it can even go to committee. So basically, you have to convince two-thirds of Congress that this is a no-brainer. And, uh, and that, is a, that is a tough road to hoe if you have any understanding of how uh, divided Congress is and how difficult it is to get things going. You know, and we have, uh, we actually have uh, in Massachusetts, where you are, uh, a lot of support. Uh, Senator Markey is uh, one of our originating sponsors, and 
Senator Elizabeth Warren is also a co-sponsor. Uh, and we have great support uh, in New Hampshire from uh, Annie Custer. But we have support really now from all over the country, but we just don't have the numbers yet. So we're trying to, to raise those numbers and get people to contact their congressmen and senators and, and get them to co-sponsor it. Because basically it's not going to happen unless a whole lot of people uh, you know, raise their voices and say, hey, this is worth doing, guys. This is worth happening. And so that's what we're trying to do and accomplish. Where can we see the uh, documentary? Documentaries on Amazon Prime, and I'm happy to say that right now it's free on Amazon Prime. So if you're an Amazon Prime member, you can watch it for free, and you can also, of course, buy the DVD on Amazon and at from directly from PBS because it was a PBS documentary. So there's a few different ways to see it. Are any of the uh, members of the unit, well, of course, they, some are still around. You've met some. How many are left, and can you tell me about any specific members? Oh, sure. So there are about 1,100. Uh, there were originally about 1,100 soldiers in the unit. Um, I think there are about 20 left, uh, so, you know, not too many. And, of course, they're, they're very old. Uh, one of the gentlemen... Uh, uh, Stanley Nance is 101 years old, uh, and he lives down in uh, in Utah. And uh, Stanley actually is planning to come over to Europe uh, in September with his family and take his family to some of the places where the Ghost Army was 75 years ago. So that's a trip I'm going on with them and, and very excited about uh, through uh, through Stephen Ambrose historical tours. And then uh, one of the guys, uh, Gil Seltzer, uh, who was in the uh, – Stanley was in the radio deception. Gil Seltzer, who was in the visual deception unit, you know, working with the inflatables. Gil Seltzer is 104 years old and I, and Sheriff's attack. And I talked to him the other day. Well, let me tell you, I called him on his 103rd birthday. This is a year ago. And I said, Gil, I'm calling to wish you – Happy birthday. And I want you to know what he said to me was, can't talk, Rick. I'm waiting for Uber to take me to work. And that's when he was 103 years old. Okay. If I live to be 103, that's how I want it to happen. So Gil is uh, still an architect. He now consults on uh, redesign and restoration work on buildings he designed 60 or 70 years ago. So he's, uh, and he's still going to the office three or four days a week. So God bless them. Can we drill down into some of the actual activities, real granular, if you will? Pick a pick a, an operation and go through it in slow motion. Sure, absolutely. Um, let's take an operation they did called Operation Bettenberg in uh, September 1944. So George Patton has raced across France with the Third Army, and he is trying to break through the German line. So he's focusing all of his forces on this fortress city of Metz on the French-German border. And um, there's a, a, a gap to the north of him, in mostly in Luxembourg, where there's really very few American troops. And there's a fear there that the Germans, if they realize that, could get behind Patton. So they don't really have anybody to plug that gap except the deceivers. So the, the men in the Ghost Army are at that moment, they are in, um, in uh, uh, just outside of Paris. 
uh, and the order comes through to do this deception, and it's very fast. They they call the commander at 10 in the morning. He goes to the briefing at noon uh, in Versailles. By 4 o'clock, the trucks are rolling uh, out of Saint-Germain-en-Laye outside of Paris, and they drive uh, several hundred miles, uh, spend one night on the road, and they get to Luxembourg uh, late in the evening the, the following day. And they literally don't know as they pull up they know they're within a couple of miles of the front line. They don't really know exactly where the front line is. They uh, fear this kind of dangerous situation. And very quickly, uh, they go to work doing uh, several different things. So the guys who are working with the inflatable tanks uh, start to inflate about 50 uh, 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 inflatable tanks in one location, 50 others in another location. And by the way, if you're setting up a display of inflatable tanks that you want enemy uh, artillery to see, uh, excuse me, enemy uh, observers to see, uh, you better have tank tracks there. And 90-pound inflatable tanks don't make tank tracks, so they had a couple of bulldozers to make the tank tracks. Well, they're doing this, and of course it's nighttime, so the enemy can't see it right then. They've got sound trucks that start playing, playing the sounds of tanks rolling in uh, to the area. Uh, to the areas where they're setting up the fake tanks. Meantime, at the same time, the guys in the radio unit are setting up a fake radio network. So what do I mean by a fake radio network? Well, they're pretending to be, in this deception, the 6th Armored Division. Well, the 6th Armored Division has a real radio network. It would have a divisional radio and radio at the battalion level and regiment level. So the Ghost Army, they don't have all the men in the tanks, but they've got the radios. And so they're setting up a radio network that's sending all these signals back and forth that the enemy can hear. So it sounds to them like there's a, an actual unit moving in there. Uh, and they actually tied that network into the real networks, so that real radio networks, so that they're actually talking to real units. Uh, so, again, that it sounds like to the enemy who is trying to listen in on this, uh, even though they can't understand, you know, what they're saying because it's all in code and it's also transmitted in Morse code, they can read the, the traffic analysis and kind of figure out what's going on and it seems to them like a real unit is there. But then there's one more level of deception which they begin the next day, the second day of this deception, and they call it special effects. And that means that you're going to take your trucks and you're going to mark them with six armored division markings, and you're going to drive them into town with soldiers in the back of the truck. You put two guys in the back of the truck on that deuce-and-a-half truck, and it looks like it's filled with people. You drive it through town, you change the markings, put two different guys in, you drive it back the other way. So they're creating a lot of traffic. They create a phony headquarters. They had a person impersonating, an officer impersonating the commanding general of the 6th Armored Division. So he's pretending to be the commanding general, he's a major, I think, uh, who was pretending, and he's driving around the countryside in uh, a convoy of jeeps inspecting, supposedly, uh, various places, so that if there's enemy spies left behind, they're right near the German border, they're going to report that. So all of these different things are happening at the same time. And once they get into the deception, they decided in this particular deception, about two days in, uh, to the deception. They decided that um, the inflatables presented more risk at that point than reward because they were concerned they were so close to Germany that spies might see them. 
So they took down the inflatables, but they continued the sonic deception, the radio deception, and the special effects for uh, uh, several more days. So that deception ended up lasting seven days uh, until eventually a real unit uh, was able to come into the line. And then they did something interesting, I think, which is that they, they, they didn't just, like, stop the deception. They did what they called playing it out. So they made it seem like the 6th Armored was moving back into another position as this other unit was coming in. So the enemy would never cotton to the fact that there had been a deception going on. So that's kind of the basic uh, way they pulled it off. There were a lot more details, too, because they did things like, um, you know, very simple things. Like you're trying to pretend, you know, an armor division is, is you know, out of 12,000 people, something like that. With all, so you're trying to pretend you have a lot of people. Uh, you're lighting fires. You're hanging out laundry. You're... Uh, setting up what they call a water point where you can gather, get water for your troops and you drive a tank truck to that and then you bring it back into your camp and then when nobody's looking, you dump it all out. So you're doing all these things to create the illusion of a real unit being there. And it clearly worked because the Germans never figured out that there was a gap there where they could break through and get behind Patton. So that's kind of the whole point of what this unit did. So you they, the enemy, didn't really even need to see the inflatable tanks because there's so much else meta stuff going on, like exactly the, the chatter, et cetera. Well, if you're trying to fool somebody in this way, right, you are literally trying to fool somebody who wants to kill you, right, and who doesn't believe, who isn't necessarily going to believe you, uh, but, but you're trying to present this picture in all these different ways. You don't know what part of it they're going to see. But any little bits of it that they see, the pieces are going to add up. And in a way, you kind of don't want them to see everything because you want them to feel like it was hard to figure out, right? Right. So if I'm trying to fool you and you feel like you had to kind of puzzle it out, you're going to really believe it as opposed to if I spoon feed it to you. So in some ways, it, it, it can work better if you've only got fragments of information. Yeah. You don't want to seem like you're trying too hard. You don't want to exactly. seem like you're too obvious. You let them, you let them think that they were geniuses to figure out that you're there. Exactly, it's an art and a science. And these guys, you know, it took them time to get really good at the deception. Bettenberg, I think, was the first deception where they felt they really pulled it off. Uh, and but they got better and better as they went along at at convincing the enemy of what they were trying to do. Did the Germans ever figure out that the unit? existed at all so that they would be on the lookout for such a thing? I have not found any evidence that the Germans ever figured this out. Now, there were deceptions where the Germans maybe didn't completely buy the deception. They were marking it on their maps with a question mark, or they were not uh, marking it at all so that maybe they didn't get the message or they didn't uh, completely believe it when they balanced it with other information. But I have never seen any evidence that they actually figured out that there was a unit operating against them in this way. And if you think about it, it'd be really bad if they did figure that out, because if they could figure out the telltale signs of the deception unit, then they could go, oh, look, the deception unit is in action here, so we know there's nobody else there. That's where we should attack. Hmm. And so it's a good thing they didn't figure it out. Were there any weaknesses in the way the Germans did things, with the way they organized, with the way they communicated, that these, this unit was aware of and capitalized upon? 
I don't know that I would say that there were weaknesses per se. The Germans were heavily reliant as the war went on. They were less reliant with on, on aerial observation and more reliant on uh, radio observation. So, so listening in on the enemy's radio networks. And the Americans knew that. They knew how sophisticated the Germans were at this. So they worked really hard to present uh, a strong radio picture. I know that's a, wow, that, those are two words that don't go together, but you know what I'm saying. Absolutely. Uh, so, and, um, and so, uh, and, and interestingly enough, the Germans felt that they were very confident that they could identify individual American telegraphers, right? So this is Morse code with the telegraph. Ah, they, they thought that they identify, could the signature. You have uh, a traveling museum is that correct rick well we have uh had an exhibit that has traveled around but there's an exciting new piece of news that uh i can tell you about which is that the national world war ii museum is about to launch in new orleans uh, where i am actually tonight is about to launch next year in march a temporary ghost army exhibit there a brand new temporary exhibit, and then that exhibit's going to be down at the World War II Museum for six months or, or so, and then they're going to travel that exhibit uh, around the country uh, in the ensuing period after that. So we are really excited to be working on this uh, exhibit with this uh, facility, which is really the preeminent uh, World War II Museum in the world, I think, uh, realistically, uh, putting together a ghost army exhibit and then being able not only to show it to people here in New Orleans, but take it out uh, across the rest of the country. So that is a really, really exciting piece of news that uh, that we are working on to, to turn into a reality by by next March at this point. So uh, I think that's going to be something that people people can put in their calendars for next year to come down and check out the ghost army at the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. How do you hold up under the New Orleans heat that must be significant on this July 10th. Are you a heat guy? Yes, I just listened to you to do the weather. It was I just listened to you do the weather. It's definitely much warmer down here. It's about 95. I think air conditioning is the uh, is the uh, answer for holding up in the heat and then not moving too fast when you are outside. X, while you're while we're talking about the World War II Museum, you're a guy who's been there. What what can you tell us about it? It is I've been there. And I've tried to describe it, but I had difficulty. I mean, it, it definitely it has a feel to it. It has a lot of dioramas, correct? Yeah, it's uh, it, 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 first of all, it's it's a it's a very large scale museum. So people sometimes think of a museum as a place they can go and spend a couple of hours. And while you can do that, you can also spend a couple of days uh, at the World War II Museum in New Orleans. And it's very experiential, so it's not just a lot of photos and text, but you're walking through, uh, you know, the, you start with a kind of a, uh, an orientation in a, in a train car, like you're a soldier traveling to, uh, to an army camp in 1942, and then you're working with, uh, you know, you do the road to Berlin and the road to Tokyo, and you really follow along and, and see kind of what's happening uh, as the uh, the fighting is moving from the D-Day beaches, let's say, to Berlin, and you you really um, um, you really experience it rather than just like say read it or, or see it. And then they've got, I mean, they've got amazing 
uh, airplanes and vehicles of all kinds. They have a uh, a restored uh, PT boat that that they uh, you, they will take people out on. Uh, they do charters on, uh, and they have um, uh, temporary exhibits that are really striking. They also have uh, they are becoming really one of the preeminent research institutions with a great archive collection and historical collection. So it really is. I think TripAdvisor calls it like the number three you know, museum experience in America or the number three attraction in America. I mean, it's very, very high. It's a, it, it really is um, uh, an amazing place. And if you're interested in that area at all, it's kind of a wonder. And I've even left out, they have this, this victory theater with the, with the 4d, 3d or 4d uh, uh, movie, you know, on multiple screens with sound and, and, rain and snow and wind and the earth shakes and i mean it's it's uh it really is quite an extraordinary place what's some of the items that are in the exhibit the uh ghost army exhibit well you know i i could tell you but i'd have to kill you because it's secret right now right. um but we're, we're we're really trying to put it together and we're trying to we you know we're, we want to have a, a replica of one of the inflatable tanks and uh we are actually canvassing right now in the families of veterans and seeing what people have uh, themselves that we can use. We have a lot of rare uh, photographs uh, and um, some smaller artifacts that we're going to be able to put together. I would love to see a, um, you know, some of the stuff is still up in the air, but I think we're going to try to do an exhibit on the sonic deception and kind of let people experiment with that. The curators there who are working on it uh, are really trying to use this as a way to um, to kind of let people, uh, especially young people, kind of interact uh, and uh, do interactive stuff and really kind of give them a window into the World War II that's a little bit different than just, you know, bang, bang, uh, shooting people. But it's this idea of using creativity to save lives, using technology, using art, uh, using you know, imagination and illusion and trying to, to really give them a sense of that. So uh, I, can, I don't know all of the things and exactly how it's going to uh, end up, but that's the kind of the ideas that people are going into it thinking about. You send a link to the, a website, the website, very rich, included for, uh, letters. I did not have a chance to read those letters. Can you tell me about the letters on, that you see on the website? So our website, which is ghostarmy.org, which is the website for our nonprofit, the Ghost Army Legacy Project, uh, does have, uh, among other things there, it has uh, a collection, excerpts from a collection of letters uh, by a soldier named Harold Dahl, D-A-H-L. And he was one of the guys in the unit, and he wrote hundreds of letters home, and his family donated them to our archive, and we have... Uh, excerpted, well, we have, I think, the full letters, about 50 of his full letters. Uh, so we included uh, images of the letters, plus the, you know, made the text so people could easily read them, you know, made it like type. And, and it's one soldier's view of the war and of being in this secret unit, which mostly he can't talk about, but he gives hints about. Uh, and, and, and it's his kind of hopes and fears and a, a wonderful, um, a wonderful bit in a series of letters where he meets this girl and he thinks they're going to get married and she disappears 
like he doesn't ever really know what happened to her. Like she ghosts him, as we'd say in the modern parlance. And then our archivist who was working on this, uh, Donna Albino, she found uh, she found this woman's letter. She'd been a nurse. Her letters were in another archive, and we kind of got her side of the story. Uh, and so we included a little bit of that as well. So it doesn't have a whole lot to do with the deception per se, but it's a great human window into the life of an American soldier in World War II. And we've got a lot of stuff on that website. We've got the official history of the unit. We've got a lot of photographs. We have interviews, some of the raw interviews that I did for the PBS documentary on there with the soldiers. Uh, we we have tried to to put a lot of things on there so that people can really um, dive into the story in their own way, that researchers can get something out of it, that students doing high school projects can get something out of it. So we've tried to make it really rich. So thanks for noticing that. Absolutely. I'm And this is a technical matter here. I'm surprised that he could even hint about this. This is an extremely important thing. I thought that letters from soldiers were examined and redacted if necessary. Oh, they're all censored. They absolutely are. But, like, there's a letter where he tells them before they're going over, he says, you know, we're going to be, you know, I can't tell you what we're going to be doing, but I can tell you it's very important uh, and that it could change the course of the war and it could get people to look at, you know, how artists are being involved differently. So, you know, he's saying things like that, but he's not telling them, hey, we're fooling the Germans and using inflatable tanks. He's not being direct, but he is kind of giving some hints. And then there's moments in the Battle of the Bulge where you, you sense his despair, where he's saying, how do these Germans get this 11th hour energy? We thought the war was over. We thought we were, we were going to be done. And now here they are attacking us. Is this going to go on forever? So there is a lot of, of really good stuff in that collection. Did the unit have any significant heavy weapons at all? And if they did not, that would that would uh, make them pretty vulnerable, especially because they appear to be an army unit and would attract opposition from other armored units. Are they just if they'd been Bingo. found out, would they gotten would they have been just wiped out? Bingo! I think if they had been found out, they could have been wiped out, and they have. Their heaviest weapon is probably a 50 caliber machine gun, which is not going to do a whole lot of good if you're attacked by uh, enemy tanks. And one of the things, you know, um, we do a ghost army tour through Stephen Ambrose historical tours, and we literally bring people from the place in England where they train, and we follow their route across France and Luxembourg and, and Germany, and it's this... Uh, amazing trip. And we take people to the American cemetery in Luxembourg, and there's a soldier from this unit buried there, George Peddle, who was killed during one of their deceptions. And and I say to people, look, you know, we we tell this story and people kind of sometimes laugh about it. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of a funny, strange, bizarre story of this deception unit. But men bled and died to carry out these deceptions. Three men were killed. I actually just discovered a, a fourth who, who died uh, on the trip over from uh, England to France. Uh, about 20 or 25 were wounded, some quite seriously, uh, uh, losing limbs. So fooling the enemy is not um, for the faint of heart. It was a dangerous business with artillery uh, pouring down on them. Uh, and, uh, and, yeah, and it could have been a lot worse if the enemy had figured out what they were doing. What were they most afraid of? 
as far as getting found out, how, how do they fear they would most likely be found out? They were afraid of a couple of things. They were afraid of somebody identifying an inflatable, right? So they had a lot of rules about the inflatables. You can't carry them across a road in daylight. You know, you're not supposed to really set them up except at night. You're not supposed to get up on one where it would be obvious that it was inflatable and not real. So that is a, uh, you see that in their reports. You see that there's a, uh, um, they're, they're scared of people getting through the security perimeter and seeing that. The other thing that they're scared of is that, you know, the Germans are, um, uh, are doing patrols, you know, infiltration patrols, and the Ghost Army is doing patrols as well, trying to sort of see where, you know, how close they are to the line, what's going on there. And they are concerned that, that one of the, uh, somehow one of the Americans might be captured that the Germans might capture one of the men in this unit and they might uh, then, you know, interrogate him and discover uh, 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 that something is going on here out of the ordinary. And so during the Battle of the Bulge, it's kind of interesting, um, the Germans attack, the Ghost Army is really at that point in Luxembourg City. They've just finished a deception uh, and, and Eisenhower could really desperately use more troops on the front line but they don't rush the ghost army to the front line. They rush them in the other direction, 100 miles back to Verdun to get them out of the way so that they can make sure nobody's captured and make sure that they preserve that deception capability for future use. So those are two areas where they were really concerned about, uh, you know, somebody seeing an inflatable or somebody getting captured and spilling the beans. And speaking of getting found out, there's a headline in the Worcester Telegram that that says... <laughs> Uh, you know, American troops perform neatest trick. Now, isn't that kind of thing dangerous? They have spies over here. Ghost Army, Ghost Army uh, pulls, you know, neatest trick of the war, right? Something like that. It's in uh, uh, August 1945, right? This, this story, which supposedly was kept secret till the 1990s, was all in the Worcester Telegram and some other newspapers back in 1945 because a soldier named Sebastian Messina of, of, of uh, Worcester, we can mention him because he's passed away, so we're not going to get him in any trouble, um, uh, he spilled the beans. And, you know, what happened is that the newspaper had, had, had uh, put this story together, and they ran it by the censor, and the censor said, well, you can't run that. And then the war ended, and the censorship office closed. And so the newspaper figured they could run the story, and so they ran it all, and then some other newspapers picked it up, but the thing about secrecy is you does not be any good to call them out for it, right? You right. don't say, hey, you told our secret that we didn't want anyone to know because that just tells everybody how important it is. I guess so. So the Pentagon let that die down and then try to put the lid on it after that. But okay. right, it was secret and yet not completely. Do you have 10 more minutes to talk about other things you've done and are doing? I would be delighted. Okay. After this on WBZ. I've got something to say. Yes, Brad. Jay talking. Bradley Jay. WBZ News Radio 1030. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Turn on your radio. You've got me listening to this. Turn it on. Bradley J. Oh, you're a smooth talker. You are. Jay talking. You talk the talk. Do you walk the walk? WBZ News Radio 1030. Just for a few more minutes with Rick Meyer, we talked a lot about the documentary, which you can see on Amazon Prime, about the Ghost Army. And we've just gone through what it was all about. And I'm going to race home, watch it as soon as I can while I still have Amazon Prime. But uh, Rick's, Rick's done a lot of stuff, and there's a book, a Burr book, Burr, a uh, Hamilton Burr book, correct? I wrote, I wrote a, yeah, I wrote a book called Rivals Unto Death about Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. I'm actually speaking about that at the library in Poughkeepsie, New York on Saturday uh, afternoon. Uh, yeah, so cause it's kind of a, uh, the idea was to write a, a kind of a short book that give people the whole story and take a look at both guys and, and their interactions. You know, they were, they were friends before they were enemies. Uh, uh, there's a lot of stuff that didn't make uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical and a lot of uh, interesting stories there. And, and that's a book that starts and ends with the famous duel. So, uh, and then tries to give you the whole relationship between them in between that. I know there's talk of Hamilton shooting into the air. The other version of that is, that he was lazy, didn't practice, used someone else's gun, and he was hit in the arm, which made him his shot go wild. What's your take on that little little scene? Uh, I, I think it's most likely that um, that Hamilton fired first. Although all the I can all the Hamilton people in your audience are going to now rise up as one against me, but I think that um, my take is is kind of there were hair triggers on these pistols and supposedly they weren't set, but maybe it was. And if Hamilton had a hair trigger on the pistol, he may have intended to throw away his shot uh, and sort of wait for Burr, but he might've pulled the trigger, put a little too much pressure on it, fired prematurely. And for various reasons, uh, Aaron Burr was pretty convinced that Alexander Hamilton was gunning for him. And if Hamilton did fire first, I think Burr would have thought the only way to really protect himself was to fire back and and kill him. So I'm, I'm not exactly saying I'm sympathetic with Burr, but I think there's a, a pretty good chance, based on the testimony and everything, that Hamilton might have pulled the trigger first, whether he meant to or not. And in the limited time we have here, things from your past that you've done, do you love us to know about? 
Well, you know, the thing that I'd love you to know about the most, I did mention it briefly. Uh, uh, you know, my past happened so long ago, and I don't want to put everybody to sleep for the rest of your show. But um, we are we are doing this tour, the Ghost Army tour uh, of Europe, and um, you know, we're doing the next one in September of 2020, the next uh, full two week tour. And I just want to encourage people to take a look at the the website for Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. You can easily find it on on Google. It's a tremendous trip, and we kind of combine the uh, the World War II battlefield uh, and, the, and some of the places that you're familiar with from the history books with some of the places you wouldn't know at all because they're connected with the Ghost Army. Uh, this will be the fourth one we've done, and it's uh, it's a pretty exciting and, and fun trip. And I hope people who are interested in that will will take a look at it. What I can do and, is uh, I can go I can go to that site myself. In addition to the folks going to it and on the radio, I can talk about some of the highlights. I can do that next hour to try to motivate. Oh, that'd be so kind of you. Motivate some people to That'd to be go so there. kind of you. No problem. Boy, uh, thank you. It's too kind of you to spend an hour with us in uh, in talking about this. From uh, calling from New Orleans, I'm sure you want to get well, you out. You know, I used to. I out. lived in Boston for 30 years, and I I love you guys, and I'm more than happy to do it. So thank you so much for having me on. Of course, and Jordan Rich says a warm hello. Oh, that's so kind. Yes, he's a great old friend. Okay, thank you very much. That's Rick Beyer. The Ghost Army, pretty cool, right? And this tour, the Ghost Army tour, did he say Stephen Ambrose? I'm going to look up this uh, tour and for my own edification, and I'll tell you about it. It sounds like something a lot of you would be uh, into doing, the Ghost Army tour. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.